Hey, what's up, everybody? Wesley here with the CarTech Garage, and of course, my cohort, Maximus Gundrum. Absolutely excited for another week in automotive history. Yes, indeed. So let's go ahead and kick it off here. We've got some good information to cover this week. Uh, I know we've been releasing our podcast every Wednesday, and thank you so much for everybody who's downloaded and listened to the podcast so far. Of course, we've got more content rolling out every week just for your listening pleasure. So we'll go ahead and kick it off May 9th. 1876. Now, some of you guys might already know what this one is. 145 years ago, and after 14 years of diehard research and development, Nicholas Auto succeeded in creating the compressed-charged internal combustion engine, or the autocycle engine. And you can thank that man because it's pretty much powering every single vehicle on the road today, of course, in heavily advanced formats. But still, um, his creation has lasted this long, almost 150 years so far, and we're still using it. I see, baby. I see. Yeah. You know, it's, <laughs> it's great to see these things. You know, if you, if you look back in history, you know, something that might have been a minor detail a long time ago now is something that we widely use in almost every vehicle on the road. Yeah, absolutely. Now, back in the day, you know, there, there were two different kind of schools of internal combustion engine. One was George Brayton's engine. The other one was Nicholas Otto's engine. Now, Brayton's engine um, also heavily influenced the American automotive boom in the early 1900s. Um, and of course, you know, Otto's design was, in my opinion, a little bit better. Um, he actually found a very specific way to layer the fuel mixture into the cylinder to cause the fuel to burn in a progressive manner as opposed to like an explosive fashion. Um, he referred to it as being a layered or stratified charge. Now, the result was a controlled combustion that had a slower burn and more consistent burn, so it can actually push that piston down through the cylinder wall rather than just, you know, vapidly exploding, which had actually destroyed like six engines that he had previously made. <laughs> he was like, well, let's try it and we'll just make it and then pop. They broke. <laughs> but, of course, this is the engine, uh, you know, first to competently use the four cycles, you know, the four-cycle engine. You've got power. Um, to you've got intake, compression, ignition, exhaust. So um, Max can explain that too. I guess. Yeah, it's a four-stroke. Yeah, four-stroke. You got two-stroke, four-stroke. This is four-stroke. <laughs> Simple. You, There's yeah. four of them versus two of them, right? That, that's all there is. Quick maths. <laughs> and so the intake charge, you intake all the air. It, it uh, you know injects fuel into it. Then it compresses the mixture. Then a spark plug ignites it. And then it pushes it back out through the exhaust. So that's kind of how the whole thing works. Um now, the auto cycle engine was um, eventually adapted to run on gasoline because at first he just ran it on all sorts of different fuel vapors, kerosene, and all that stuff. Uh, the cool part is his invention proved to be so versatile that during World War II, auto engines were actually run on more than 62 different types of fuels, depending on you know the locality. Um, I mean, they were you know wood gas, coal gas, propane, hydrogen, benzene, all sorts of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> See, my, my favorite way to describe an engine, which is more of uh, loosely used terms, is suck, squeeze, bang, blow. That's always my my simple way to, to explain it. That's inappropriate. I know. All but right. That, that's why it's always funny. Anytime I hear anybody say that, because you know, you your technical side, and then you have this, and I'm like, yeah, that, that sounds much cooler. Yeah, I mean, if, if your it. mind's out of the gutter, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> um, all right. So we'll go ahead and move forward here. Thanks, Nicholas Auto, uh, because one of your engines is powering my bike and my car and Max's car and blah, blah, blah. 
All right. So May 10th, 1959, uh, 62 years ago, uh, the Monaco Grand Prix was won by Australian race driver Jack Brabham. Now, he was driving a Cooper T-51, and this was for the factory Cooper team. Um, now, Coopers had won in the past in, in Grand Prix races, but this was the first time that the Cooper factory team actually won. It was also the first win for Jack Brabham, who would, of course, become a future three-time world champion. Um and uh, he actually finished 20 seconds ahead of the Ferrari that was behind him. Tony Brooks was driving a Ferrari 246 behind him, and that uh, the Cooper T51 just ate it up. Mm-hmm. Awesome, awesome cars. Because Cooper was the first one to, um, you know, really make the mid-engine uh, format work well. And the Ferrari was still running a, a front-engine format. You can even see a picture here. Um, the front engine Ferrari with the rear engine Cooper. And, I mean, it was just, it was a mockery of it. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, it really was. Well, not only that, I mean, now, you know, we know that a mid-engine formula is the most capable starting point. You know, that's why Corvette went to it. That's why Ferrari's now been doing them for years. Lamborghini's done them. Every super and hypercar manufacturer besides Porsche, um, and of course, Porsche does have some mid-engine cars as well, you know, has typically gone mid-engine just for the the, uh, performance benefits of it. You know, the only reason the 911 is kind of still, you know, rear engine, A, it's a purist format and everybody loves it that way and it drives perfectly, but also you get rear seats. <laughs> yeah, that's the truth. See, I always laugh because if you think about, you know, walking with a really heavy backpack, that doesn't work very, very well when you're walking around town, you know, it's kind of the engines in the rear, you know, give or take yep. as the backpack and it doesn't work too well, but you do it in a car and it has this whole different personality to the vehicle. That's I mean, the it changes everything. You can wear the backpack on the front for a front engine. You can wear the <laughs> backpack on the rear for a rear engine. Or you can wear a fanny pack. Oh, I see there what you did go. there. I see what you and did now there. now you've got okay. the ultimate in mobility. I see. The sad part is you basically just compared a mid-engine Ferrari to a fanny pack. <laughs> so. Perfecto. <laughs> All right, we'll go ahead and move ahead again, talking about uh, this is actually about Ferrari. Um, They lost again. But anyway, May 11th, 1947, Ferrari made its independent racing debut at Piacenza in Italy. Um, Enzo Ferrari actually entered his own Tipo 125 in that race. And it, uh, of course, had the new Colombo V12 engine. And he actually led the race for two whole laps. um, Or sorry, he had two laps to go. And he had a, a fuel pump failure, forced him to retire. But he was winning in his brand new racing car. Not a lot of people know it, but... You know, the Tipo 125 is the first Ferrari, but there was this old car called the uh, Auto Avio Construzioni 810, mm-hmm. and that was actually a car that was designed by Enzo Ferrari under the guise of the Alfa Romeo racing team. Oh, okay. So okay. he started out running the Alfa Romeo racing team and eventually built his own cars. Um, he ran it uh, prior to World War II. Okay. So, you know, all those Alfa Romeo 8Cs and everything, he was kind of in the mix there. Um Obviously, a brilliant designer and, and an even more successful racing team and manufacturer, uh, you know, manager. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, obviously, he's left his mark on history pretty thoroughly at this point. Yes, that is for sure. Yeah. All right. May 12th, 1991, just 29 years ago, Ayrton Senna won the Monaco Grand Prix. Ta da! <laughs> Surprise. Uh, yeah, this was his fourth time winning it in five years. Uh, <laughs> So, I mean, he, he really is the king of Monaco and was the king of Monaco. Um, and this one, he was driving the McLaren MP4-6. So it was after the turbocharged era, you know, V10 engine, um, still wicked fast. And the McLaren-Honda matchup in, in that year was just unstoppable. Of course, he actually won the, the World Drivers' Championship that year. 
Um, so, of course, he shocked no one by taking pole position, winning the race. But second place was a surprise. Um, this guy named uh, Stefano Modena, he actually, they, they had Goodyear and Pirelli qualifying tires that were available to him. And he ended up signing on with the Pirelli qualifying tires. And he ended up getting second place in the qualifying and he was pretty much a not on the grid type of driver. You know, he, he wasn't even on anybody's radar, really, um, which really upset, you know, all the other typically top drivers like Patrese, PK, mm-hmm. Mansell, Berger, Prost. All those guys were like, what the heck is this guy doing up there, man? I'm usually in line. Um, it was an interesting race, though, because Martin Brunel got disqualified because he actually missed a weight check, <laughs> like totally Jeez. drove by it. Um, so it was it was pretty cool. Um you know, uh, Berger ended up uh, wrecking in that one, which was pretty typical of him. Mm-hmm. He ended up, he ran into PK, and then he ran in the back, and then he crashed out anyway. But Senna basically just dominated everything. I mean, he built up a huge lead over Modna and Patrese, um, and they, you know, were trying to chase him as best they could. And then Modna's engine blew, threw oil all over the place. Patrese behind him crashed. And now Senna was just so far ahead. It wasn't even, you know, it would either be mechanical failure or a mistake made by him mm-hmm. to lose the race. So totally dominant in that one. And I know Senna, I always talk about him because he is one of my favorite drivers. A lot of, there's a lot of controversy around him, you know, because a lot of people uh, think that he doesn't deserve his titles, which I think he really? totally deserves the titles. He was definitely the best driver of the year. But, you know, there's that one incident in Suzuka in 89 when he won and he crashed Elaine Prost. You know, he, he wrecked right into him because he knew that if they both didn't finish, he would take the World Drivers' Championship. But if Lane won, then he would win. So it's one of those things. It's the ultimate competitive edge. You know, I mean, he was a racer through and through. But he valued the actual winning and results mm-hmm. more than, I guess you could say, I don't know, like, I, I guess the honor in the race. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like he, he didn't care if he saw the race all the way through and, and did due diligence. He did whatever it took to win. <laughs> Even if it means wrecking two cars that cost a million dollars a piece. Well, it's, you know, that competitive edge, you know, that's, that's why I think I will probably never be a race car driver because I have that competitive aspect where, you know, it, no matter what I have to win, that, yeah. that is, is down to it. And I don't know. I mean, on a track, I'm really brave in Forza Motorsport. I will run <laughs> right through the corner. I'll cut the apex and ram into the side of people. Well, you only Don't have to hit a button me. to flip your car back over. So that's yeah, exactly. <laughs> just, hit, just hit Y and rewind it all. Go at it a few more times. But yeah, I mean, like I couldn't do that. If somebody's like, hey, here's a multi-million dollar car, do whatever it takes to win. I'm like, I'm just going to get it across the line safe. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we'll go ahead and move, uh, move forward again. This is going to be a pretty F1 crowded week in automotive history, but deal with it. Uh, May 13th, 1950, 70 years ago, this was the day the very first round of the Formula One championship was held. It was on the Silverstone circuit, uh, Silverstone circuit in uh, Northamptonshire, England. Everybody knows about Silverstone. Um, the cool part about this, you know, they actually kind of got it all together and a lot of people didn't even want it to happen. So Silverstone was originally a military airfield and the British racing drivers club had actually organized the first post-war post-war British Grand Prix in 1948. And that was after, you know, other pre-war circuits like Brooklyn's and Donington, uh, they had kind of fallen into disuse. You know, they, they ran it, got run down a little bit. 
Um, but this introduction of the official world championship in 1950, you know, brought about by these drivers clubs was really heavily criticized, you know, from all these diehard purists in the sport. And they were like, no, 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 we got to keep everything going back pre-war as soon as Grand Prix started mm -hmm. back in the, you know, the, the Targa Florio and everything else. And, um, of course, now we know with current F1, they say it started in 1950. So that's just how the story goes now. And it was the first sanctioned F1 race, um, course, Alpha Romeo went on to dominate the, the field and totally, you know, took everybody by storm because they still had, you know, the fastest pre-war cars back then. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, you know, anyway, really, really neat. Nonetheless, um, it, it, in fact, uh, King George VI and Queen Elizabeth were there. The first and really? only time that a reigning monarch had attended a motor race in Britain. That's kind of neat, you know, for a first. Yeah, I mean, not that it's, like, really that important for anybody who likes cars, but, yeah, the king and the queen were there, whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right, May 14th, 1909. We're just going to go ahead and skip over. Um, 111 years ago, Erwin um, Baker finished his transcontinental motorcycle ride starting in San Diego all the way to New York, a distance of 3,378 miles with the, the current roads. Um, and he did it in 276 hours on a two-speed Indian motorcycle. And you guys may know his name was Erwin Cannonball Baker. So the guy the Cannonball Run was named after. Yeah. Um, <laughs> perhaps, you know, his best drive apart from the motorcycle run, because that is by far and above his most famous one, um, you know, to do that on a two-speed Indian motorcycle when hardly any roads had really been determined. You know, a lot of this was on dirt roads and going through fields and muck. I mean, it was, it was not so fun. Um, but his best remembered drive in a car was in 1933. He drove from New York to Los Angeles in a 57 Blue Streak 8 and set a record that stood for 40 years at 53 and a half hours. That's insane. Yeah. So obviously that drive inspired everybody else to try and do it. And that, that started the whole Cannonball Baker Sea to Shining Sea Memorial Trophy Dash. Mm -hmm. Um I don't know what it was with people in the 1900s and giving things long ass names. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, you know, movies, television series were based off of it, all sorts of stuff. Um, actually, in 1941, he drove a, a Crosley wagon across. And, of course, he didn't beat his record, but he just, you know, these manufacturers would pay him to drive, like, say, hey, drive this thing all the way across the country and rave about its reliability the whole way. And they said it didn't break down. But I always wonder, like, how many times did he have to fix these cars on the side of the road? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He drove everything. I mean, he did uh, transcontinental trips with Model Ts, uh, Chryslers, Marmons, you know, everything. Basically, anybody that would pay him to drive something across the country, he'd do it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I don't see I don't see all these big rig truckers getting, you know, races named after them. What the heck? Yeah, see, like, <laughs> that'd be a cool one. A semi-truck race. That would actually be pretty cool. Yeah, I know. I mean, racing. I know they do some semi-truck racing, but like a, a cross-country trip, who can get there the fastest? Eastbound and down, good buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Ten four. <laughs> Oh, man. All right. I'm going to stop there <laughs> on the jokes. Anyway, May 15th, last one. Then you guys can go back to your normally scheduled programming. In 1969, uh, a dramatic finish to the 24 Hours of Le Mans. Very, very dramatic. Of course, in 1969, the Ford team won with the, the Ford GT Mark I. And Jackie X was the guy that actually crossed the finish line. Um, it was him in the, uh, the Ford GT and then Hans Hermann in a Porsche. And at the end of the race, it was just overtake after overtake. 
the last lap, Ix let Herman pass him early on the, the Mulsanne straight, you know, back when they had the open straight without the chicanes in it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he basically let him by faking that he didn't, that he was like running out of fuel. And he ended up using the slipstream, you know, slingshot engaged, passed him around the end, right at the end of the straight, managed to hold him off and beat him by a few seconds. They said it was 394 feet in total uh, that he had won by. <laughs> Um, so it was Ix and Oliver that actually were, were co-drivers here, there on the GT 47. Uh, the chassis number was 1075 for those, you know, Supreme Ford GT nerds. Um, it was the same car that won the previous year. And this was the second time the same car had won two years in a row. The last time that that had happened was back in 1929 and 1930 when a Bentley speed six had accomplished that feat. So the Ford GT was only the second car ever to win it twice in two years in a row. So kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there's this week on Automotive History. I hope everybody here has thoroughly enjoyed it. And if you guys have any questions or comments, feel free to hit us up on social yeah. media. You know, obviously, I've, just like everybody else, we're always glued to our phones. So, <laughs> Well, I've got a question for you. Yeah. Can we do some more rally history? Oh, you asked me that last I week. know. I keep harping on it. I'm you know? sorry. we yeah. got to do some rally. All right. Well, then <laughs> we'll, we'll, uh, we'll rally our troops and our time. and <laughs> See what you did there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. We'll get out of the woods soon. Okay. See what I did there? All right. Anyway. Anyways, yes. Thank you guys for listening. We seriously, you know, appreciate the support. Um, and we're thankful to be doing this. And, you know, definitely follow us on social media. As Wesley said, you know, it gives us more more input on it, too, and some more topics to talk about and, and hopefully have some more topics, you know, here soon for you guys. Yeah. So before we go, I'm just going to hit you guys with one of these. You have to turn up the volume. Oh, this one? Yeah. Oh, I'm going to hit you guys with one of these.